1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long run. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Wait, is that the license I really want in this repo? Maybe I should use another one. Today, we have one other panelist besides me. Hello, Justin Dorfman. Hello, Richard. And we also have a really interesting guest today, Carlos Maltzan. Hey, glad to be here. Carlos is a professor. Where are you, Professor
0: Carlos? I'm a I'm a faculty member at UC Santa Cruz or the University of California in Santa Cruz. And I am teaching computer science and engineering. How long have you been doing that? 15 years. Nice. Well, what's your specialty yeah. in computer science? Storage systems. So I design large, scalable storage systems. And more recently, I've been also looking at reproducibility.
1: So storage systems for, like you talking like SQL or are you talking for like large, massive supercomputers? Both,
0: systems? actually. Uh, so we're actually trying to merge the two, the data management systems of the world and the storage systems.
1: Now, you also have another project that uh, is really dear to your heart that you've been directing for a while. Can you tell us a bit more about the CROSS program. Yeah, so
0: CROSS stands for Center for Research in Open Source Software. It is a center that was created to bridge the gap between student work and open source software projects. The the mission is to teach students how to productively engage in open-source software projects or communities. And then we fund research projects that have a plausible path towards open-source software.
1: And we are
0: incubating developer communities around research prototypes.
1: So can you walk me through what happens if I'm like a graduate student and I have an open-source project? Or if I don't have an open-source project, how do I get involved? What's the life cycle look like for me?
0: Yeah, so the, we, have a, we have two times a year we have a call for proposals. And that goes out through all the graduate students and all the faculty and saying, hey, you know, we, have, we, we can fund graduate students. Uh, graduate students have to be finished with their classwork and then have to propose a research project. And that call also includes a call for incubator fellows. So incubator fellows are people who have recently graduated with a PhD. And want to spend uh, a few more years in actually creating a developer community around their research prototypes. So that goes out twice a year. For the graduate student, basically, when we get the proposals in, we have a, a session with our uh, advisors and uh, sponsors, and we greenlight the best projects. And then we ask those greenlighted proposals to to present at a, what we call an industry advisory board meeting, which is typically mid March or uh, beginning of October, and then that's sort of a the mission of that presentation is to make the project even better, right? The proposal even better, and then the advisory board, the industry advisory board, which are only the representative of an industry, they kind of get into a closed room. It's not even I'm not even a part of that, and they decide come up with a recommendation, right? And then I take that recommendation, meet with my advisory committee which is a bunch of people from the open source scene and also have some faculty members in there. And we sort of like decide, you know, what would be the best ones to fund. And then we fund it. And we fund projects basically with the idea that we, for graduate students, we fund until they graduate. But we review them twice a year too. So, you know, as long as the reviews are going well, and as long as we're funding, we basically commit that to that continuity of funding that student until that student graduates.
2: One thing I saw that really made me go, oh, this is going to be a great interview. Funding open source autonomous vehicles. Tell me about this. Do you hang out with Elon Musk? Like, what is is your life like? No, but seriously, like, (laughs) tell me, like, how does this work? Does a major audio manufacturer fund this or is it part of California? Please, I'm just so curious.
0: Yeah, so... So there's two parts of the question, right? So one is, how do we get those projects? And then the other part is, how do we get those projects funded? How do we get those projects? Turns out there's a lot of interesting things going on in the university. And faculty are kind of discovering the usefulness of open source software in their research. And in this particular project, what, and we are particularly excited about that project because it's actually an open source hardware project and an open source software project. And so in this particular project, a graduate student who happens to be actually already a very experienced industry veteran in hardware design, wants to build a open platform for autonomous vehicles. And it's a hardware platform, right? And so it's essentially, you know, open source hardware is essentially this thing where you need to make sure that all the parts are available, they can, they're all available in small quantities, so that you can basically send the recipe of how to build that hardware to everyone, and they can just buy those pieces and assemble it by themselves. So that's the design goal. But it's also a fantastic research platform, and it turns out that doesn't exist yet, right? And so, basically, the the goal of this project is to enable the research of Aaron Hunter, who is actually lead this project, together with his advisor Gabriel Elkaim, to create really interesting research, but then also enable the research community at large to repeat that research, to build upon it, to do all these cool things, right? So, and that is only possible with this open source concept where you basically make it available and that's good for reproducibility of the science, but it's also good to for learning, for bringing in the classroom, all these things, right? So they discovered this and we're basically very happy to have Uh, this project come in and we actually just accepted it. It's like the most recent project. How do we get this funded? So for this, I have to sort of go a little bit back because we don't actually have a direct connection between funders and projects. We have, uh, and that has multiple reasons. One of the reasons is that we're actually uh, set up as a consortium. Uh, Consortium are, we're a, Funding decisions are done collaboratively. That has that means industry doesn't have direct control over milestones, and deliverables, and it's only something that collaboratively gets established. And then all industry members get sort of the benefit of the results at the same time, right? And so it's not like a, a one-to-one relationship. And the the advantage of that is that in universities like UC Santa Cruz. The tax that the university imposes on those kinds of efforts is ten percent. While if you if you do this with you know one-on-one relationships like grants, right, or contracts, it's fifty-four percent, or actually fifty-six percent, which Does is a huge difference.
1: N- like NSF grants are also taxed at fifty percent, fifty-six percent, yes. But doesn't that come from the government in the first place? Like that seems stupid to me. Just
0: just kidding. Uh, I you know it, it there is a lot of bureaucracy involved in maintaining this contract. Right there's okay. insurance. There's yeah. all the stuff, right? And so, it's a negotiation that the government basically said, "Yeah, we, we support the infrastructures of universities with that, <laughs> right? And and that part of the money can be spent on all of the administrative positions that kind of make sure that we don't we do the right thing."
1: Um, it, but so consortiums th- only have a ten percent tax. Yes, and and that's
0: because you know we want to encourage that industry kind of. And, and university, it's it's easier for the university to maintain, right? We don't have to have this one-to-one relationships. It's just the pure relationships. But it's also an encouragement to get sort of industry to collaborate through the university. And that actually is what happens here, right? So we have members. Currently, we have four members at for cross, And this is the, the the whole center was actually built after the pattern of what's called an industry university Collaborative Research Center. It's the IUCRC. It's a concept that is, is very much pushed by the National Science Foundation. It's very well known in the industry. It's very well known in, in universities. The only thing that we changed is essentially the licensing, which is you know always open source. And it's that incubator part that we added to, to CROSS. So how do we get this funded? The the most important thing, I think, for CROSS, to understand the success of CROSS is Ceph. Is so Seth is a storage system that Sage Wilde, who was a student uh, at UC Santa Cruz from around 2003 to 2007, he uh, created this storage system as part of his PhD project. And, and then because he was already a serial entrepreneur, had already founded DreamHost, right? he was, had the means to just continue working on that project after he graduated. And that's the key difference, right? So he basically thought that, you know, it was really cool to have an open source storage system. It didn't exist really before then. I mean, it did. There's Lustre, but it's mostly used in HPC environments. There was Swift as part of the OpenStack community. But Ceph had like these really cool features that made it very scalable. And it kind of, you know, Sage was very convinced that that was the storage system he wanted to have in his web hosting company. Because for web hosting, storage is actually the biggest cost center. And so he, it made sense, right? He got his company to, behind it to fund that effort. And so he hired people and and was able to continue working on it. Eventually, you know, Seth became incredibly successful. We can talk about more of the details and how that actually became successful. And there were some interesting lessons there. But needless to say, at some point, Sage sold his startup to Red Hat made a lot of money. And we asked Sage whether it would be, it would be nice to give back a little bit of that <laughs> to the university. And so he gave me $2 million to essentially build uh, Cross. And $2 million, this is a lot of money. Uh, it was the second largest gift ever done, given to the School of Engineering at UC Santa Cruz. And, and it was a big deal. Suddenly everybody woke up. Whoa, you know, that, that was an open source software project. Right. And suddenly we have $2 million in the bank. And I basically so I had dinner with Sage, where he basically said, I give you $2 million if you create a structure that would allow other students to have a similar career as I had. I said, oh, what a cool idea. And I just happened to have, with another student, created this class which would teach students how to get involved in the Linux community how to actually submit a Linux patch. That was pure coincidence, right? But I like I set this dinner table with Sage and I said, so how about a, a center that would actually teach students how to get productively involved in you know, Linux development or any other open source software development? And he, he liked that. That's exactly what I want. That's exactly, you know, just, just teach students how to, how to really get involved in open source software projects. They learn so much more than you normally learn in the university. <laughs> And and become leaders and all you know all the good uh, things that you learn in open source uh, software project, and so that kind of you know started on a good note. But then I I really went crazy uh, the following uh, year to just put this together. And I talked to a ton of people. You know, I talked to people from Red Hat. I talked to people from everyone I knew, and 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 everybody Sage knew you know who could help me to really put this together. And this is how CROSS kind of was put together. It had like these three components, it's teaching, research, and uh, an incubator. And then we started, I mean, I have, I think I did like at least one pitch a week for a while to companies. It was a tremendous amount of work. Luckily, we had also, we have a, a corporate developer at the School of Engineering, Frank Howley, who's like, Really good, and he was actually the perfect person to include because he had in his prior career he was a salesperson for component makers, and it turns out we very quickly identified component makers. These are people who build electronic components, including storage devices, like you know Toshiba, Micron, SK Hynix, that they had already tremendously benefited from the existence of Seth What Seft did for them was that it actually cracked open the market that was previously uh, locked by storage vendors. Uh, And so you couldn't really use those storage devices unless you would buy them in like small quantities as a USB device, right? Or if you would actually buy a storage system, right? So any enterprise would would, would go to the storage system vendor to buy storage. Not to the storage component makers. And so the storage component makers were sort of like basically they had to wait for permission to, to have their uh, product be used by that other industry. And so Ceph kind of opened this up, right? Now suddenly you could just tell customers here, yeah, take all these components and run Ceph, right? And so and that was actually happening. So you saw all these hardware makers like supermicro actually coming out with with Systems that were that had an SKU for Seth, right? It was like basically designed for Seth, which is sort of at that point I realized, wow, this is big. <laughs> and these hardware uh, people were actually designing something for for an open source software project. That you know, there was one of the things that I was also involved in when when we founded it. I came up with the name. I was sort of a key member, uh, mentor of of, of while when when he started this project, and so it was sort of like this moment where we realized component makers had an amazing interest to repeat that success and we it took us about a year and then we kicked off cross with three members and in fact the three first three members were Toshiba, SK Hynix and Micron and they were very much hoping that we would repeat the success and we could we had that credibility because we did so and sage was also on in the advisory committee from across, right? So there was like this connection and, and they sort of got the, the benefit open source very quickly. And then over time, we, we, we developed new promising projects and we got more members involved. And so it, it's, uh, but that's sort of the, the fundamental uh, mechanism that we see that, Gets these open source projects funded. It's basically based on an already successful open source project. And, and the experience of certain industries with open source as being a very beneficial thing for them to sell their
2: products. You know, it's so interesting. I didn't know you were involved with Seth. The way I kind of came around it was I went to a meetup at DreamHost in Los Angeles and downtown. Mm-hmm. And across the hall was this company called Seth, And I was like, what is Seth?" And then I put two and two together because they were involved with the open compute platform. What was that? Open stack. Open open stack. stack. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Oh my God. So I just saw the brand recognition. I was like, and then someone told me like, oh yeah, he, the founder was, it founded Dreamhost. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. I get us all coming yeah. together. Now, I remember back in the day when like in the late nineties and early 2000s, a lot of web hosting companies used like proprietary devices like NetApp and all those mm-hmm. other things and when you brought it up earlier with it being very expensive that's basically one of the biggest costs in web hosting at the time was was storage and you know with ceph and a bunch of other you know open source technologies that would allow you know, prices to drop where and it brought a lot more accessibility to, you know, anyone could host their website on their own custom server because it's it's cheaper and it's due to this open source software. So, you know, it's it's really cool to hear that. And also the fact that Sage is giving back in such a huge way, not just mm-hmm. the money, not just the two million dollars, but the advisory is right. is second to none to hear and get advice from someone who's been in trenches, I think mm-hmm. is more valuable than anything. Yep.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And I think we're, you know, we have, uh, we're f- tremendously lucky to have a advisory committee, you know, that includes Sage, it, cru- it includes Duck Cutting, you know, and we got, we have Karen Sandler on the board, right? Uh, executive Director of the Software Freedom Conservancy. We have, let's see. So James Davis is a faculty of UC Santa Cruz he is interested in entrepreneurship within academia. And then we have Lisa Struckman, who recently joined. She is the VP of Technology, IP, and Innovation and Strategic Partnerships at Visa and has a very long you know, experience with sort of this interplay of valuing company, open source software, and acquisition mergers, right? So it's this really cool... So we have basically two legal people two technical people and one academic person on the advisory committee. We might extend that, but I think that, you know, these advisors have been tremendously helpful in kind of figuring out how to structure all this, you know, how to sort of steer us towards the technologies that are really interesting and that we should target in open source software and to also keep us honest, right? Whether it's uh, people who propose something, and they can basically point to other open source software projects. One of the key advice that we got from Sage, and this is connected to you know you mentioned OpenStack, is that one of the key factors that made Ceph uh, successful was that it fit into the ecosystem of OpenStack, and that was actually not intended at all. Right, we Ceph was originally uh, built as a File system for HPC applications, high performance computing applications. It was funded by uh, Los Alamos National Labs, Sandia National Labs, and Ron Silvermore National Labs, right? And it was really intended to, to help, you know, these big simulations. And, but then just by coincidence, the object store, which was the, was underneath the file system layer was this really cool, artifact that you could just turn into many things, not just file systems, but also S3, but also a block device. And so this was actually somebody and this is the beauty of open source software projects is you get like someone who just and I I asked Sage and he couldn't remember who that was, but it was somebody who suddenly had this idea to build a block device on top of the object store. That then could be used in all the virtual environment, right? And so, and that, so you had a storage system that could do file systems, object storage, and S three, and you only had one storage system, and you could use, you know, all these applications that have any of those interfaces interact with the storage system, and that really made sort of uh, a Swiss Army knife. While also having really good scalability properties and 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 failure properties, right when I mean, was like no single point of failure. and so that's that I think in the OpenStack community really embraced ceph and and it made it hugely successful because it was sort of an amplifier, right And this is actually we encoded that lesson in how we select incubator projects in, at cross. if you apply uh, for an incubator fellowship, you have to show us that the project that you're proposing meets with great interest in a very well-established open-source software project. And it's sort of the same as if you go to an accelerator, right? You have to have done already your market research a little bit. We help you, you know, to do more, but you have to sort of identify uh, and show that there is, you know, there is interest, right? and it's it's a very so we are now, you know open source was not always that way, right? it was it was it had a lot of startup effects. But now that open source as as a movement has really matured, you can almost always find uh, existing projects that you can that you can use as a jumping
1: board. What's really interesting to me is that it seems like the most value you're getting comes out of people who are iterating on something else, who are working on something else, who already have, say, research you know four or five years of a phd behind the tool that they're then applying for which is Mm -hmm. is great because then you know you say you have to do your market research before you go to a an accelerator that's true but imagine if you had to do four or five years of a phd before you go to the same accelerator you'd be way more better prepared right you know what's going on and plus you have that entire time hopefully assuming that the you know the faculty is, is advising, <laughs> like being advised yeah. and figuring out, you know, hey, maybe you shouldn't go in that direction because that was tried in the 80s and it didn't work very well. Or, hey, right. you should go here, right? Yeah. So it's, it's this wonderful mix. It's like a, a potpourri of just beautiful things where you have industry that wants really talented people to do stuff that knows that, the value. Open source, which already has shown that something like this has been built before. A student who has a ton of research and then good advisors who can help that student lead them along the way. With that in mind, you've had this amazing, like almost Deus Ex Machina experience of like a developer who, you know, already had his own very successful company and then did a PhD and then was like, oh, I could turn this into a company too or something and then made a lot of money, and then donated it back. Have you had other success stories besides? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. And so far, no. We only
0: have this one data point, right? And that is definitely a it is a thing that we have to change very soon. But the good news is we actually have another project that has already, it's making great waves. And it's called the Skyhook Data Management Project. And it's one of, it's actually the oldest incubator fellow, Jeff Fever, who is an alumni of Santa Cruz, but went into industry for four years and then came back uh, because he had like this vision of how data management should work. His his background is data management and databases and realized when he was working in an industry that the market was such that even though technology was clearly there, you could do it, right? Nobody was interested in doing it. Like there is, you couldn't found a startup and convince somebody to fund you because it would undermine, yeah, you could do a startup. Let's say you could do a startup, but then nobody would believe you that you would come up with a new database because it's like you have such dominant, uh, players in that field that. So you, the startup was actually the only thing. Sorry. So Spoke. So the startup is the only way well, he saw that sort of a startup, the only way to get this done, but he had no, he didn't have the means like Sage to, to just sit there and develop and, and, you know, in fact, he was out of a job. Right. And so it was like and I basically said, you know, the the, the coincidence was that Jeff came into another blog entry about this on the cross website. Jeff came into my office the day after I had spoken with Sage, after I had that dinner with Sage, you know, where he basically said, I want the structure. And I told him about it. And he had sort of already already accepted a a job in industry. And he would basically uh, said, I didn't know that you are doing this. I would have rethought my whole, I you know, my whole career if I would have known about this, this this opportunity, and so I kept that in mind. And then when I heard that he was out of a job and that was looking for other other possibilities, I said, "Why didn't you try it? Why didn't you just apply for a fellowship?" And his application was great, right? But it was basically he tried first, and then Sage, no, 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 we want we want you to show that there is that there is interest. And so he found that community in the Postgres SQL community. You know, and that. So I, I should say what Skywalk is. So Skywalk is essentially uh, what we call programmable storage for databases, and what what it essentially does is takes Ceph, and Ceph has this really cool plugin infrastructure. It uses it all the time. It uses it has uh, it stores objects, right? That's an, it's an object-based storage system. I should also very quickly explain what objects are. So objects are essentially files. The distinguishing factor is that files that objects are only stored on one server, files are striped across servers. Objects objects are arranged in a flat namespace, so there are no directories. It's just, but you can arbitrarily name objects and you can partially update them just like a file, right? There's basically a byte string. And then the system, Seth, underneath takes care of replication or any kind of redundancy scheme. But for the user, the whole system, I, it kind of presents itself as like one store Where you can just store an object by name, and you don't have to worry about anything else. So the libraries that you link with kind of figure out where that object is stored and all that stuff, and it works, you know, in the face of failures and all that stuff. But the fundamental uh, data that you store in an object is a byte stream, basically just bytes, just like in a file. And so there are little extensions possible for objects. So for instance. There are objects for S3, there are objects for file system metadata, there are objects for, you know, other things. And they all distinguish themselves of having, in addition to read and write methods, they have also methods like create a directory or, you know, do or split or merge, right? It, they're just little special methods that make the overall system way easier because it turns out when you actually put those methods at the data where the data is stored it's a natural serialization point when you access the data right if you would do that somewhere else then you would have to you know come up with all kinds of complex code that would coordinate and that's you know almost certainly creates more possibilities for bugs and so you can get a lot of system simplicity by having slightly different object methods and so, what Skyhook DM is, it's basically taking that plugin infrastructure that's well established in SAP, and uh, stores data not as byte stream but as tabular data. Mm. And it uses the it uses two open source libraries to do that. There are very fast serialization libraries. FlatBuffers is one of them. Google came out with that. It's it came out of the video game community. It's a way of very quickly uh, store. Tables, row-based tables, you know, onto onto files or onto anything, right?
1: And so this um, is doing really well. Like there are people who are interested in in how this does it, because I would love to talk forever about this, but we only have a set amount of time in this podcast.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So That's I want uh, to I want to just Yeah. So basically, we have like we use flat buffers and we use Apache error to to essentially uh, store table-based data, right? Yep. And so and so it turns out that a lot of scientific communities, a lot of Commercial uh, Postgres community suddenly now finds that Ceph is a backend that makes their databases much more scalable. Yeah. Uh, so that's, yeah, I will end there. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> I can talk a lot about that. But no,
1: it's, no, that's, it's, it's, it's fun, stuff. Been, fun stuff. I've been, I've been reading, um, what is it? Martin Kleppmann's book, uh, Designing Data Intensive Applications, which has been teaching me a ton about that sort of thing recently. I highly suggest it to anyone listening. But that's yeah. awesome that you have other students who are going through who are also doing well, who also seem to have the opportunity and the time. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, just such, a, it's just such a great program. Unfortunately, we probably do have to wrap up around now. So I have a final question before we get on to our spotlights, which is if I want to enroll in CROSS, do I need to be uh, like a University of California student? Do I, what, what do I need to do? How, how, do I, how do I get there? So three possibilities, right? Yep. Actually four. We have as part
0: of our developer community seeding effort we have what we call a research experience program hmm. and that allows any undergraduate or graduate student uh, from any university to get involved in, 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 in CROSS to literally participate. There's a list of projects, uh, project ideas. Think of it as sort of a Google Summer of code and so there are project ideas and mentors at Cross, mostly incubator fellows who need to get work done, and that's how we see these developer communities. Right? It's basically either local students or students anywhere. We use also mm-hmm. we are mentor organization of Google Summer of Code not this year, but last year and the previous year, and so we we get anybody. So that's the first way. Second way is yes, you have to be a student at UC Santa Cruz, and you have be have to be done actually a graduate student, and you have to be done with your classwork. So that's typically in the third year. And you can you can then apply, right? There's, as I said, twice a year, for proposals. And the third way is to be a postdoc. You can apply as a postdoc in anywhere from the world. You know, you just basically say, you know, I have a really cool project. I really want to be part of this incubation program. And I, you know, so I can apply. Again, twice a year, we have this call for proposals. And then the fourth way is that you get your own university to copy something like this across, right? And that, that's where uh, what I'm trying to spread with, you know, maybe through the OSPO community, but also other ways. And I would really like other universities to adopt this.
1: Totally. And if anyone is interested in that fourth option, if you have a local connection to the university, do get in touch with either me or Carlos. We're both part of a program called OSPO++, organized by Jacob Green from Moss Labs in Baltimore, really trying to roll that out across multiple universities. It's a lot of fun and we're going to have to cover it on another podcast because that's yeah. the time we have for this one. Really quickly, spotlights. I'm going to share what got me started as a, as a graduate student. So I had an internship with Data One. That was the first internship I had right out of college there for like environmental data. And I did a ton of stuff with Sparkle and RDF. And by I did a ton of stuff, I mean I sat there and tore my own hair out prematurely until Karthik Graham really helped me out. He was one of the advisors on the project and he helped found R OpenSci. If you've used R at all, it's a really awesome project to help people get R into the sciences and keep it open source and collaborate. So do check out R OpenSci. That's my spotlight this week. Justin, do you have a spotlight?
2: Yes. So for the past month or two, I'm on the selection committee of the Mozilla Open Source Support Program. And we had a COVID-19 solutions fund And then me and the other people on the committee, we had to go over a hundred different applications. It took a long time, but there were some really great projects that we got to fund. ZDNet wrote an article about it. The amount of ads on their page is ridiculous, but it's it's a good read. Mozilla starts funding open source COVID-19 projects. The link will be in the show notes.
1: Thank you. And Carlos, you have any spotlights for us? I should really, I wouldn't do my
0: job if I didn't use this as a plug for some of the incubator projects at Cross, So I'm going to pick one. It's called Popper. It's done by Ivo Jimenez. It's a really fantastic project to increase your personal productivity as well as making all your experiments that you ever wanted to do reproducible uh, using container native workflows. And it's also a really cool way to really learn about containers, about Kubernetes, about uh, continual integration to just uh, a lot of best practices and how you should develop software and how you should investigate systematically is sort of encoded in that project. So proper, go to falsifiable.us run by Ivo Jimenez.
1: I love it. I love it. Last thing, where can people contact you? You can always send me an email at M at
0: ucsc.edu. That's the best way. And just go right. to my website, you know, people.ucc.edu, Carlos M. Thank you
1: so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It was a pleasure. <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, with enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage options, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com sustain.